Feel free to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12 there. Uh, I'm quite excited actually to get back into the gospel of Mark with you all today as we kick off uh, 2021. It's kind of even hard to believe that those numbers are coming out of my mouth, but uh, you know, there's just something about these big milestones, like the start of a new year that have a way of uh, making us all a bit more reflective than usual even just a tiny bit. Um, and I was talking with Ruby on January 1st, and I think I was feeling a little grumpy, and I was talking about how I didn't really feel all that much different from December 31st. But as we talked, I think we both agreed that we still felt this sense of, of needing to take some time to step back and to prayerfully reconsider you know, how we're doing life. Now, neither of us have really found the time to do that yet, uh, but the year is young. Um, but in all seriousness, today we come to a passage that's kind of a milestone passage. It will help us put our lives in real perspective. And it touches on so many of the big issues of life. Money, politics, marriage, ambition, what happens after life ends. Now, this is also why our passage today features this uh, proper parade of, of who's who's or the people we typically consider to be the great ones, the real movers and shakers in life, the powerful, the famous, the rich, the clever. But this parade comes to this unexpected close featuring a big nobody. It's a person that most of the world probably pays no attention to and gives no commendation to. That is, except for Jesus. And through all this, we're going to see what uh, God values, what he requires of us, and what genuine faith actually looks like in his eyes. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, so uh, we're going to... Move quick, but here's a quick refresher on where we're at uh, as we come to, to chapter 12. Jesus is in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and he's teaching in and around the temple. And this is a big deal, right? The, the temple represents the very epicenter, the very heartbeat of Jewish culture and religious life. Uh, and if you recall from chapter 11, Jesus is doing ministry here in the temple as a marked man. Because the Sanhedrin, uh, the rulers of the temple, uh, comprised of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they've all come to the conclusion that Jesus and his ministry is a dire and imminent threat to the Sanhedrin. So they've decided they must destroy him. Now, the Sanhedrin, they're not dummies. They knew that Jesus was too... Uh, famous and beloved by the people at this point to just simply go out and assassinate him, right? That, that would have probably led to riots, and then Rome would have gotten involved, and then the Sanhedrin would have gotten a, a little spanking from their Roman overlords for losing control of the city, and no one wants that. So instead, they adopt this strategy to go after Jesus. If you can't kill the messenger then you kill the message. 
So they send their best and brightest to Jesus, and they, they try to make him look the fool, to, to invalidate his authority as a teacher, to destroy his message. You know, because once you do that, he'll just kind of fade away, and the restless crowds will move on to the next thing. Now, let's look at verse 13 for the first team that the Sanhedrin sends to, to put Jesus in his place. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Ah, we've heard of the Pharisees. We've heard of the, the Herodians. But it makes no sense, actually, that they're together. This is actually quite the, the odd couple that's being sent to work together. Uh, they're not friends. They're actually heated political rivals. Um, the Pharisees were basically the party of the people, right? They're known as the, the ultra-pious. They're the hardline champions of the, the common Jewish man, which means they're anti-Rome, hardcore. And then on the other side, you have uh, the Herodians who supported the, 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 the rule of King Herod, right? Thus their name. And the thing is, King Herod's throne basically existed because of Rome. So the Herodians were basically pro-Rome. Because you don't bite the hand that feeds you incredible power and wealth. So I suppose for the Herodians, you know, the pros of Roman occupation outweighed the cons. And I honestly th think that if we were to cast our vote, you know, if we were to live in those times, I'm guessing most of us would probably be pretty pro-Pharisee, right? So, here are the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they mount their attack at Jesus with something that would soften up pretty much most of us. With flattery, right? And after they flatter a little bit, they, they, they try to deliver the knockout punch with this question about paying taxes to Caesar. So let's look again at uh, verse 14 and, and just listen. Let's listen for the hiss that's coming behind these forked tongues. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? And the irony is really dripping from the start. Because even, these, even though these guys didn't actually mean what they said to Jesus, they kind of accidentally <laughs> end up speaking the truth about Jesus. Because as it turns out, yes, Jesus does speak the truth with integrity, without any self-seeking partiality. Which means this, yes, Jesus does truly teach the way of God. Let's just consider for a moment what that means for us as we hear the word of God. Right? If Jesus actually does speak divine truth, wouldn't it mean that his words actually carry enough weight for, for us to actually build our lives upon Aren't they substantial enough that we can actually put all the burdensome weight of our lives on them? 
aren't they the sure foundation for rest for our souls? So let's get ready for it because this is how Jesus answers this question and it's meant to teach us the very way of God. And I want to say we should particularly pay attention if we know that we are prone in our hearts and minds to the ways of the Pharisees. Or how about the ways of the Herodians? You know best. The problem is neither of these ways actually represent the way of God. Something quite different. So look with me at verse 15 as Jesus answers this question. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So basically Jesus leaves them stunned and speechless. But before that, ouch. The first thing we're told is that Jesus saw right through them because their question about taxes wasn't based out of concern for political injustice or or people's welfare. But rather... What's driving them, what characterizes them to the core is hypocrisy. Self-preserving, self-promoting, ugly hypocrisy. And as we'll see, this is an issue that pervades pretty much the entire Sanhedrin. But this question about paying taxes to Caesar is is a brilliant little trap, actually. You You can answer either yes or no, but both answers are, are fairly damning. If Jesus answers, yes, we ought to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of a sudden he must be a traitor or a sympathizer with the evil pagan Roman Empire, which systematically subjugates and oppresses the Jewish people. Now, on the other hand, if he answers no, it's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of a sudden the Herodians hear this, They report him to Caesar, and then he's brought up on the charges of committing treason against the very empire, which would mean that Jesus would be as good as dead. But Jesus knows, as we've seen, exactly when and how he's going to die. And no, paying taxes to Caesar isn't the hill that he's planning to die on. He has a much greater plan that he's carrying out with much larger implications, which means that every disciple of his should be mindful of this when thinking politically about the world they live in. Because interestingly enough, Jesus simply responds to this question by exposing it as a false question. It's a question that has misjudged the real meaning and value of this metal coin with some guy's face on it? Their question has omitted the most important 
controlling detail, something none of the leaders of Israel were ever supposed to forget. That crucial forgotten detail was none other than God himself. Yet here they are, obsessed with their own nearsighted pursuit of political freedom or political expediency, uh, which, by the way, they're not evil. They're all things that actually matter to God. But the problem is they have made them idols, right? They've put them above remembering and thus relying on God, who he is, on his sovereignty, what he's actually doing in the world, because the reality is his purposes are never thwarted. His word never returns to him void. And despite all the resistance of this world, and quite unlike what, what human emperors experience, God is going to collect on everything that he is due. For the sake of his name and for the sake of those who love him. For example, I want us to remember that we are in 2021 and let's look back. All these taxes that were paid to Caesar, uh, some of that money went to building the first global system of roads. It's a pretty awesome accomplishment. Uh, they were built with the interests of the empire in mind, but that empire rose and fell. Now, do you know what else went out on those roads under the radar <laughs> to the whole world? That's why we're here today. The gospel went out on those roads. And over a few centuries, the church, seemingly in much weakness, went from tens to millions. And today, the Caesars of the, the, Caesars of the world uh, make us hot and ready pizzas at a fairly reasonable price. But it's just one reminder out of many, right, that we don't have to worry for the kingdom of God. What fallen humanity intends for evil God actually has the wisdom and the power to take it, usurp it, and return it to us as something infinitely good. <laughs> this is the power and wisdom of God. And, and the biggest evidence of this reality is found in the power and wisdom of God. The gospel, the cross of Christ the biggest proof that this is how God takes care of business. So render to him what is his. So, I will say, this does naturally raise the question of, what does it mean to render to God the things that are God's? What does that look like, everyday life? Thankfully, we are given this uh, beautiful, robust, multi-part answer to this question, I think, throughout the, the rest of these stories. So, 
The first part of the answer uh, comes through another trick question that comes at Jesus. This time a riddle from the Sadducees. Uh, yet another prominent Jewish party that, that basically represented what we might call the old money of Israel. The Sadducees were the party of the aristocrat class. Right? They had strong connections to the priesthood, uh, which is how they, they wielded their influence in the temple. Now, the first thing that we're told about the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Yes, Jewish, this major Jewish party did not believe in the resurrection. They believed in God. They actually believed in God. They believed in judgment in this life. But they denied that there was any life to come after death or some ultimate judgment after death. In a nutshell, this was their position. Uh, this is all there is. Live your best life now. It was the conservative Jewish version of that, though. Now, I'd say this is a fairly convenient position to take if you just happen to be pretty comfortable and honored in this life. Like all those Sadducees that were born into aristocratic families. Now... The Sadducees, so they, they, they claimed that their position was biblical, thoroughly biblical. The only kind of catch was they only accepted the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, as scripture, as, as being the word of God. And this, this is where Jesus parts ways with them, right? Along with the Pharisees and most everyone else who regarded the prophets as well as the writings as being revealed Word of God, Scripture. Jesus taught the resurrection of the dead. He taught a judgment to come after this life. But the Sadducees think they're going to undo that with this riddle about who will be married to who in heaven. Uh, because if you take this riddle at face value, it makes the resurrection sound kind of absurd, impossible, right? Based on the common understanding of Old Testament laws where vulnerable widows would be married to their late husband or their, their next of kin in case there wasn't an heir to carry on the family line. Now, it's also important to understand that these laws just aren't for riddles. These laws were put in place as gracious protection by God for widows in their most vulnerable circumstances. It was a provision that, that provided real hope for the future in the face of death and tragedy. And it also challenged the men in the family to step up, take some self-sacrificial responsibility, and do what was good for their family, as well as the community at large. So many levels where it was all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And maybe, just maybe, that's why Jesus is so blunt and direct with these guys. Maybe he took issue with, with how this group took something that was about God's heart for the plight of, of widows. And they just turned it into some absurd intellectual riddle. One that was designed to justify their ridiculous novel theological position. 
Remember, we'll be seeing shortly the plight of an actual widow who is living a very hard life under the present leadership of Israel. So Jesus wastes no words with these guys. Look again at at verse 24 with me to hear his response. Verse 24, and Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I'd love it if he just ended that with, I said good day, sir. (laughs) But, in all seriousness, according to Jesus, if we deny the resurrection, we are simply quite wrong. Wrong as wrong can be. And it's not just about being wrong about something that doesn't really matter. You're wrong about the only thing that does matter. Life. Life that somehow overcomes death. This is the kind of fatal error you don't want to make. Now now Jesus explains this toxic uh, error in two parts. First, the Sadducees don't know their scriptures. And second, and I would say as a result, the power of God. One simply goes with the other. There's no real separation of the two. I think you can separate them as much as you can separate speech from breath. You look at the the scriptural testimony, when God speaks, it's as if he acts. That's why in Hebrews we're also told that, that the very universe that we live in is upheld by the word of his power. And Jesus, I love this, he's just, he just goes, he just meets them right where they're at. Using just the books of Moses, which they accept as divinely inspired, he reminds the Sadducees that God's work and plan of salvation goes far beyond the confines of this life. It's in no way impeded by death. And to prove it, Jesus points out this simple textual uh, reference that everybody knows that God is the giver of all life and he's been long defining himself associating his very name with the names of those who in the, in their, in the course of their life have been walking with him by faith Abraham Isaac and Jacob and all of them are alive now more than they have ever been. (laughs) Because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you know what? This is good news for married people. (laughs) This is good news for single people. It's also good news if you have lost loved ones in the Lord. We're all going to be raised someday. 
to the throne room of God. And this next life, it's, it's not going to be a simple con- continuation of this life. It's going to be remarkably different and more glorious than we can ever imagine. Um, things like marriage, they're just these faithful signposts that point to the age to come. Now this brings us to the final question in our passage from a member of the, the Sanhedrin. This time it's a scribe. And he's not as hostile, this one. Um, But a little bit of background on the scribes. They're basically the highest teachers of the law. They're the teachers of the teachers, right? Multiple PhDs in in Torah, in the Bible, from the best universities. And the scribe just happens to be listening in to this conversation that, that Jesus is having with the Sadducees. And he decides, you know what? I'm impressed enough. I'm intrigued enough. I'm going to go ask this guy a question. But not just any question. It's the million-dollar question that that the scribes constantly debate back and forth. Which commandment is the most important of all, Jesus? Now, we take this section of Scripture for granted, but this this was a breathtaking move by Jesus. Let's look at it again in verse 29. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus first quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's the temple of scripture verses. It's, it's what's recited morning and evening by serious Jews. In fact, it's a practice that, that has kind of been intensified since the temple disappeared. And this is how Sinclair Ferguson describes this law. This law requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of one's being. Wow. You can stop there, Jesus. Uh, You know, the the scribe might be thinking that because he just asked for one commandment, but Jesus ain't done. He unexpectedly adds another commandment as if it's implied from the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19. And there you have it. A singular summary of the will of God. You want to understand what actually makes up the fabric of reality? There it is. Jesus just gave it to you. This is what he expects from man. Now, because of that, I think there are so many ways we try to squirm our way out of uh, these But thankfully, the scribe doesn't do that. He receives this answer sincerely. And Jesus even says, and the text tells us that Jesus sees him, uh, sees wisdom in him. And yet, the last thing that Jesus says to him in verse 34 is, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
that's a nice enough commendation, but really I'd rather hear, uh, now you are in the kingdom of God. <laughs> because as it turns out, the law on its own can't bring that about. No matter how sincerely you believe it. If it's not sincerely and perfectly kept, the law can only condemn you. The law can only push you outside of the walls of the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't end there, right? He goes on, but he also tells us a warning. A warning about how far the scribes have fallen from keeping the standard of the law. And this is kind of discouraging because these are the so-called experts at the top, right? The, the spiritual leaders that are supposed to know this stuff inside and out. If they can't keep it, then what hope is there for us to keep it? Look at what he says about these scribes in verse 38. Jesus says, and in, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Once again, ouch. <laughs> the leaders of Israel are basically... Uh, these self-promoting hypocrites who do most of what they do to be seen by men. Not only that, they prey on the most vulnerable to up their social status. They devour the houses of poor widows. And for all that, God is going to bring severe judgment upon them. But before we start to feel more righteous than they... I want to remind us that the scribes are a warning to every one of us. Particularly people like me, whose vocation is full-time ministry. But I don't think any of us are supposed to miss how we fall short of this law as well. So the real question becomes, what hope do selfish sinners like you and me have who fall so short of the commandment of God what hope do we have of ever entering into the kingdom of God I love it but Jesus started his ministry in this gospel in the gospel of Mark presenting this kingdom of God as if it was a possibility for us he, he went around proclaiming this message he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think this is where the unexpected twist comes in. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, you're actually going to need the help of the king himself. 
Which leads us to this next scene where Jesus sits before the great crowd at the temple and he's there teaching them the Bible, Psalm 110, which by the way happens to be the most often quoted passage in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament. And it's a psalm that, that the scribes have, have traditionally taught is about the Messiah, the Christ, who they refer to as the son of David, right? The fleshly descendant of, of King David, and he would usher in God's kingdom. But Jesus, as he's teaching this psalm, he starts to push this, this popular interpretation to its limits. Basically, uh, he pushes the issue of whether they're thinking maybe a little bit too small about who the Christ actually is. Because even the great King David calls him Lord and Master. And uh, if you were listening as, as Psalm 110 was read this morning, you heard about this Christ who is not only Lord, but he's a righteous king who will rain down perfect justice on all the nations, Rome included, while interceding for his people as a priest forever, welcoming them, leading them, as they freely entrust themselves to him and his mission in the world. Maybe that's why it's the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it may just be that Jesus is trying to clue us in and push us to, to recognize that not only is Christ the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Now, after Jesus finishes uh, this teaching time in the temple courts, we come to this scene, this final scene where he, where he takes a breather, he sits down and, and he's observing, he's, he's people watching. But he's, at, he's near the, the temple treasury where people make um, their, their big offerings of the year. And there's a lot of people to watch because Passover is, is about to happen, which means that the typical crowds in Jerusalem have quadrupled. They, they go from like estimates were anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000. A lot of hustle and bustle. It's also a, a really good place to be seen if you're rich and you want to um, make sure that as mo many as people as possible see your great gesture. But then we're told in verse 42 after Jesus sees some rich people putting in their large sums, he happens to notice a poor widow who came and put in two small copper coins which add up to a penny, the smallest coinage in Rome. Now imagine most of the crowd would take zero notice of such a thing, who cares? Some old lady just put in a penny. Or if they did notice, they might sneer. Right? I, that is an embarrassingly small sum. That's an insult to the Lord. Why even offer that? As if, you know, the Lord's work depends on money, first and foremost. But amazingly enough, the, 
the Lord Jesus sees this offering and he's so genuinely moved that he calls his disciples to share with them what he's just witnessed. Look at verse 43 with me. Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, mind you, Jesus doesn't say that the rich contributed nothing. But what he does say is that in his eyes, the poor widow put in so much more. And here's this widow. Here's this poor widow. Not all widows are poor, but this one is poor. She appears to have lost everything in this life. Nobody sees her in the world. She's kind of invisible. And so far, this passage has been hinting at us that these abject circumstances that she's living in are a direct result of the failure of Israel to keep the commandment of God from the leaders on down. But the Lord sees this woman and he seems to be intimately aware of her life story and her present circumstances. And he commends her to every disciple then and every disciple since. He commends her. Think about this. This woman, of all people, had every excuse to wallow Oh, my circumstances are so miserable. And they were. She had every justification in the worldly sense to shake her fist angrily at God. Why me? But in place of a fist, she offers this open hand, right? Displaying humble, beautiful faith. This widow's faith is like a treasure in jars of clay. Here's a person who is resigned to live as though God is all that she has, all that she needs, worthy of everything she has to give, meaning God is all that she has to live on. She wasn't trying to foolishly manipulate God, you know, by making some great sacrifice. It was two copper coins that added up to a penny. And before God, all the material wealth of this world, all the money in the world, I'm guessing is pretty much like a penny to him. That's how much he's impressed with that. He doesn't care about that. But what he does care about is the heart behind the offering. And here's this widow who in the 
midst of oppressive and unjust circumstances, in the midst of all the trials, from her poverty, she does something that shows that she has entrusted her life to the Lord. Walking by faith, trusting the Lord as if he's all that she has to live on. I know I fall short of this. So, in case we're still wondering what it means to render to God what is God's, here's a living picture for all of us to take away. It's this poor widow. This poor widow reminds us that even if uh, Caesar were to come or the scribes were to come and take everything from us, we still have what we need to live in the here and now and in the life after. If it's the God of the living who walks with us, who sees us and knows us. Because in the kingdom of God, things are valued and seen much differently than in the world. And I just want to leave you all with this encouragement. Um, all of us who, who think we have maybe very little to offer to God and his work in the world. I think the accuser often wants us to believe that. But if we recognize that we are actually free to return to him what he's given to us, however little or however much it is, whatever we've been given, that he sees this, he knows this, and it's precious in the eyes of the Lord. This frees us up from all manner of, I would say, fleshly jealousy, uh, strife, worldly ambition, all the stuff that comes with uh, comparing ourselves to others and being obsessed with, with how we're seen by others, by men, mere men, who have no power to give life whatsoever. Wouldn't that be that's a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit? You're just freed from comparing yourself to others because as long as we make our offerings by faith unto the Lord, it's gladly received by the Lord. Even a, even a penny, right? And this, this is what I also don't want us to forget. Jesus He's in Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit for the sole purpose of rendering to God what is God's. He is there to entrust his entire life to his Father's care. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who is also the Son of God, is about to lay his life down as a ransom for all law-breaking, self-seeking sinners. And although his death on the cross will be the greatest sacrifice and offering ever offered up to the Lord, it's going to be despised. It is even today, right? It's, it's seen by the world as something shameful, foolish, weak, and worthless. 
but for us who have seen and tasted the goodness of the Lord in this offering, the hope is one day we're going to rise as he has risen and our names will live on with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Imagine your name being associated with his forever. (laughs) So let us render to the Lord Jesus what is rightfully his, our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, because he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Amen.